0: Emma Skye was an Arabist working at the British Council in 2003 when the United Kingdom joined the U.S.-led invasion and occupation of Iraq. Though she strongly opposed the war, she opted to join the Coalition Provisional Authority, which administered Iraq after the fall of Saddam. Here's why.
1: Well, the British government, this was in 2003, after the decision was taken to go to war, the British government sent an email around asking people, to volunteer to go and administer the country for three months before we handed it back to the Iraqis. And I thought this is a great opportunity for me to go out, to apologize to all the Iraqis for the war, and to help them rebuild their country.
0: She served as the top civilian coalition official in the oil-rich and ethnically diverse province of Kirkuk, and later returned to Iraq as the top civilian advisor to General Ray Odierno, as they manage what's now known as the Sunni Awakening. She tells stories from these experiences in the episode you are about to hear. She also has them down in her new memoir called The Unraveling. Skye had an unusual upbringing. She was raised by a single mom who worked at an all-boys school. So young Emma Skye's formative years very much included being the only girl in the room. And she discusses how that experience affected her later on in life. We kick off with a discussion about the current state of affairs in Iraq and Syria before pivoting to a longer conversation about her life and career, which includes a long stint in Israel at the height of the peace process in the 1990s and its later unraveling. This was a great episode. Thank you all for listening. As always, you can get in touch with me at globaldispatchespodcast.com. And now here is my conversation with Emma Skye. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube.
1: And the political outcome. I mean, Iraq and Syria, they're two different cases, but they're very, very similar. So the issues are, you know, they're... They're there because of Sunnis feeling very disenfranchised. And in order to defeat the Islamic State, to defeat Daesh, we have to help set the conditions whereby Sunnis in Iraq and Syria turn against Daesh. And they're only going to do it when they see that Daesh is not going to win, that there are better alternatives and that they're supported. So all of this requires them to see that at the end of this is going to be a political outcome, where in Iraq, you'd see genuine power sharing between all the different groups. And in Syria, you would see power sharing and the end of Assad's regime. I mean, Assad has mass murdered hundreds of thousands of people in Syria. So a political solution at the end is not one that will keep him in power, but it is one that would lead to him leaving power and i think the vienna talks that we're seeing in syria are start start of a potential political framework to look at how you can agree ceasefires at the local level but also to go beyond that to envisage what the future might look like which would very much be about decentralized government protection for minority groups and power sharing so it's, it's hugely, hugely complex. And there's no point just having military action if there isn't an overall strategy.
0: It does seem, though, that the strategy that's being envisaged by the Vienna talks, that's being suggested by the Vienna talks, is almost to disaggregate the conflict between the um, the civil war against uh, the Assad regime and the ISIS conflict and solve the, uh, uh, introduce some sort of political solution along the lines of what you just described uh, to the Syrian governance question uh, as a first measure and then a second measure to go after and defeat ISIS. Does that strike t- as as plausible to you or as logical to you, that sort of almost two-step process?
1: Will it... It is very difficult and it's all been made more complex by Russia getting involved because the Russia, I mean Putin's aims are not to really defeat ISIS. The Russian and Iranian support has actually been about strengthening Assad's regime, not really about combating ISIS, Daesh. And so this is problematic because in order to have progress made on the ground by local Sunnis against ISIS, they must feel that there's a future political game which they're involved in and which she's the removal of Assad. They must believe that, because otherwise we're never going to get their support to actually bring about an end, not just militarily, but ideologically to the Islamic State.
0: Well, so then I guess it suggests to me, though, that the strategy is bound to fail then if Russia is insisting on, a, on bolstering Assad and the players on the ground will only um, lay down their arms and join a political process if Assad's exit is, a, is, is guaranteed through this political process, then it seems that the, the, there's just recipe for a continued civil war.
1: At one level, yes. But a counter to that is if Western countries get more heavily involved and not heavily involved supporting Russia and Iran, but heavily involved working with local forces on the ground to combat ISIS, and then to balance, if you like, the Russian and the Iranian support for Assad. Because it's the Russians and the Iranians who can bring Assad to the table. It's the Russians and the Iranians who in the end can persuade Assad to give up power. They're the ones with influence over him. But unless Western countries get more involved, then it will end up with Assad getting stronger, which is not the outcome which will lead to stability. It will just lead to increased instability.
0: So I guess maybe this brings me back to my, my first question, though. What, then what does that increased involvement look like? I mean, if on the one hand you have Russian planes bombing rebel positions and strengthening the hand of, of Assad, what, you know, what does the U.S. response or, or the British response to that look like? Like what does more becoming more involved actually mean?
1: Well, Daesh its power and its appeal depend on its ability to endure and expand. And to be able to stop it enduring and expanding is critical. Air power at one level prevents the expansion. It also allows forces on the ground to make gains. But at the moment those forces on the ground tend primarily to be Kurdish forces inside Iraq, inside Syria, you've got Kurdish forces and you've got some different Arab forces, but not enough Arab forces. So more effort needs to be done with Western special forces on the ground, working with local Arab groups, local Sunni Arab groups to get them to turn against Daesh and to support them to do that. Um, how would
0: you predict um, the, the, the Vienna process or, or resolves itself or proceeds over the next several months? Like, what, what do you see happening here?
1: I expect it to be one step forward, one step back. It is going to be difficult. And that's why important that the U.S. really leads. The U.S. has the power to convene, has the power to or has the influence to get others alongside I mustn't just think this is just about Daesh because this is so much broader. Daesh is a symptom of the breakdown of politics in the region. And, you know, when the U.S. was really engaged, there was a whole host of problems as an unintended consequence of the Iraq war. And then when the U.S. disengaged, a whole other host of problems arose because other non-state actors and hostile states started to fill that power vacuum. Power vacuums are very, very dangerous. So we can only hope that the Vienna talks are part of a process that leads to greater stability, greater balance of power in the region. That, you know, the Iraq war more than anything has triggered off this geopolitical struggle between Iran on the one hand and Saudi in the Gulf countries and Turkey on the other, which has led them to support all these extreme actors in different countries, turning local grievances over poor governance into these regional proxy wars. And so this is all a result of Iran becoming stronger as an unintended consequence of the Iraq war. So the US and Western powers have to do much more to balance Iran and the other countries and to try to create some regional stability, regional security, System that will prevent son of ISIS arising in the future.
0: Um, so you just referenced uh, the idea or or, or the, the the process of the U.S. disengaging in Iraq in in the you know late two thousands uh, as a you know pretext to the the rise of of ISIS in in a way. And I know that this is to a certain extent, the subject of your memoir, and I called The Unraveling, which I recommend everyone check out. And I'll post a link to it on globaldispatchespodcast.com's homepage. Uh, but I would love to, to talk about you and where you came from. I mean, you have such a, a fascinating story. Uh, so where were you born?
1: I was born in London.
0: To what family? What, what did your parents do?
1: Um, well, I can't tell you much about my father's. I don't really know my father because my father left when I was one month old. So he's not been a figure in my life. Um, My mother worked as a housekeeper for people. So we moved around a lot as she was, you know, a living housekeeper in people's houses.
0: So did you grow up in like wealthy people's houses?
1: Yeah, for a couple of years. They weren't so wealthy, but for a couple of years we were moving around as she got these jobs as housekeepers. But when I was four, she got a job as a matron in a boys' boarding school. So we moved to live in the middle of the countryside in Britain, in in a beautiful old building that was a boarding school.
0: And so you grew up in a boys' boarding school?
1: Yes, and I actually went to the boys' boarding school as well.
0: The only girl in the boys' boarding school, I would imagine?
1: Um, At that boarding school, there were five girls. But from age 11 to 13, I was in another boarding school where I was the only girl.
0: How did I mean that experience uh, affect you? I mean, it has to be somewhat. Um, I mean, it's it's, it's unusual <laughs> for one. I mean, how how like how did you just kind of go about your day to day life? I mean, you know, I once having been a thirteen year old twelve year old boy can only imagine the, uh, the 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 kind of you know stuff that you have to deal with and put up with.
1: Yeah, well, there lots a lot of things I really try to block out of my mind. So, <laughs> you know, little boys, the From age 11 to 13, when I was the only girl, this was a horrible, horrible boys' school where they really didn't want any girls at all. Girls were thought of as just horrible, disgusting, were going to destroy the school. And they were very, very hostile. So, you know, call me horrible names, would sometimes ignore me, would sometimes thump me. They were not nice boys.
0: Uh, So, I mean, how did you emerge from that, uh, like intellectually curious and and, and caring about the world?
1: (laughs) Well, I had to hold my own because, you know, with little boys, you mustn't show any sign of weakness. So I had to, you know, be as good as them as sport. I had to thump them when they thumped me and I had to be smarter than them in class. So they made me, I suppose, very competitive and also very resilient
0: And so how or when did you do you you went straight to to university after uh, your experience in the sporting school?
1: Well, no, then from 13 to 18, I went to another boarding school, which was mixed.
0: Okay, a respite.
1: (laughs) Yes, I started having my first female friends when I was 13. I'd never had any female friends before 13. So I
0: I guess growing up in this environment, what... um, like, how do you become curious about the world? How did you become curious about the Middle East? Like where, where it's the origin of, of your um, engagement in the Middle East, intellectually, at least?
1: Well, at one level, my father, who I never knew um, was Jewish. So I knew that about him, but I didn't know anything else. And I had a year out before I went to university and I went off to kibbutz in Israel. And it was on the kibbutz that I got really interested about the world. I mean, I, my job on the kibbutz was milking cows. So I'd get up each morning, round up the cows, milk them. And every evening I'd be spending around the campfire with young people from all over the world discussing you know, world peace, meaning of life. And we used to listen a lot to this radio show called The Voice of Peace from somewhere in the Eastern Mediterranean. So it was a pirate ship. They used to play all this sort of 60s music, peace music all the time. I think hour after hour of no more war, no more bloodshed. And so it was the period on the kibbutz that really made me, I suppose, a humanist and made me think that you know, what I want to do in my life is to help promote peace in the world.
0: Uh, what year were you at the kibbutz?
1: 88 seven
0: okay so like 10 years after um or or the 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 latest sort of war in in the middle east the 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 october war yeah um was that like resonant on the kibbutz at that time i mean kibbutzes are generally kind of lefty places left-wing kind of places you know almost communist or they are communist they're they're like a manifestation of communism yeah socialists sure um like like was, like, how did you relate, how did the kibbutz relate to, like, the politics of of Israel at the large at the time?
1: Well, the kibbutz seemed a very isolated world. So my whole experience of, or that my first experience of Israel was purely of life on kibbutz, which was like living in a remote village. So it didn't relate so much to the world around. I mean, there were some soldiers on the kibbutz. Some of them belonged to this Group that did part time military service and part time kibbutz service. And these were very, very left wing soldiers who would say, you know, we don't mind dying for our country, but we refuse to die in Lebanon because that war is um, not a just war. Mm-hmm. So there were lots of those sorts of discussions with young soldiers. The kibbutz also had, it was almost like a boarding school for um, young people from difficult homes. So a lot of those were from Middle Eastern backgrounds. So I got to meet, you know, Moroccan Jews, Algerian Jews, lots from Middle Eastern backgrounds.
0: Uh, and so when what did you do when you left the kibbutz? What was, your, what was your plan? Did you have like a plan in life at that point?
1: I went to Oxford to do my degree. And while I was at Oxford, I decided, you know, I went to do classics and I thought, no, I'm not going to do classics. The first intifada broke out and I thought, I'm going to study Middle East and I'm just going to try and do whatever I can to try and help bring about peace in the Middle East. It's an
0: ambitious press, uh, you know, it's sort of, sort of like an ambitious goal as a university student, you know, I'm <laughs> really? going to make peace in the Middle East.
1: <laughs> oh, I wasn't going to make, I was going to help. I was going to work to do, you know, work towards promoting peace. When you're a student you're always thinking you know, why was I born what's my purpose in life and for me I thought my purpose is to work towards peace
0: and so did you start to study arabic at the time
1: yeah i studied arabic and hebrew and you know middle east politics literature
0: uh, and so what was your first job out of college
1: um
0: or how did you sort of make, how did you implement your vision of, of helping to create peace in the Middle East? Like, how did you make that manifest?
1: Well, I went, when I immediately graduated, I went traveling. I set out to Timbuktu. So I went hitchhiking on my own across Africa, trying to get to Timbuktu.
0: Wait, how does that work? So you, you like, take a flight to Algiers or something and, uh, and hitchhike across <laughs> the, the Sahara?
1: I started in Morocco or Spain and then Morocco and then hitchhiked right the way across the Algerian Sahara down to Niger and I couldn't get across the border into Mali. There was fighting going on.
0: Right. Like the Tuareg insurgency was happening at that time too.
1: Yeah. So all of this was happening. I got to Benin and Nigeria. Anyway, so I never got to Timbuktu, but it, it was, it was a long journey. It was a long trip and the days before email and internet and anything like that but I got to see you know what it's like to be vulnerable I got to meet people from all different backgrounds all different cultures I was very much reliant on you know the kindness of strangers and when I got back to the UK I the first job I got was related to the Middle East peace process because by the time I got back the Oslo Accords had been, I think they had been signed. So the first job I got was part of the Madrid peace process, the multilateral working groups that were set up as part of the Madrid process. They had a working group on refugees. So I was employed to go out and do research in the Middle East on Palestinian refugees. And the goal in those days was that, to ensure that nobody within 10 years would feel like a refugee in the Middle East. Which is rather ironic, considering what's happened. Right now, yeah.
0: So so, so I, how does that work? So, so you would go to, I would imagine a place like Syria where, where, or Iraq at the time where there are a number of, of Palestinian refugees, and what interview the local population? like how, how, how did, how did how did you actually do your job?
1: Yeah, so I was sent to Gaza, the West Bank, Jordan. So part of the work was going to the refugee camps to find out the aspirations of different refugees. What do they want from their future? What services do they have in their communities? What job opportunities? How integrated were they into the local societies? um, And just provide baseline data, if you like, on what life was like for refugees. Uh, And that was then fed up into the, the peace process
0: I guess um, at the time when you're doing this work, did you expect that there would be, you know, progress towards peace? I mean, looking back at it now, you know, Oslo seems like a, a sort of a feudal enterprise. And, and you know, you, you just referenced the the fact that we're in the midst of the world's, world's worst refugee crisis, largely stemming from refugee flows in the Middle East. Um I guess, how did you understand the historic significance of your work at the time?
1: Well, back in the 90s, it really seemed that it was inevitable that there would be peace, that there would be two states for two peoples. And, you know, after i had finished my refugee work, I went over to live in Jerusalem. And this was at the time when Israel was handing over authorities in Gaza and the West Bank, was handing authorities over to the Palestinian Authority. And I went out there, I was managing projects on behalf of the British government to help build up the capacity of the Palestinian Authority to help prepare it for statehood. So we did training for civil servants and sort of helped introduce systems into the ministries to manage human human resources. And it really seemed inevitable that this was going to lead to two states. When I was in Jericho, when Yasser Arafat came back, I was on the peace demonstration in Tel Aviv the night that Rabin was assassinated. But it, up until that moment, I really thought there were going to be two states. That moment was you know, the most devastating moment.
0: And so that the, the assassination of Rabin at the time you thought you know, he was a singular individual in Israeli history, and you know his assassination meant the end of the peace process.
1: At that moment, I didn't know that it would mean the end of the peace process as such, but it just seemed so devastating because his leadership had been critical to getting Israelis to believe that two states was possible. So during the you know the beginning of the '90s, there was a big swing in public opinion. And a large number of people really believed that peace was possible, that it was going to happen. It was going to be hard. I mean, that demonstration, the peace demonstration where he was assassinated, was a public show of support for his policies.
0: And you were there, you were at that specific demonstration?
1: Yes, I had come in from Jerusalem.
0: Did you, I'd gone to
1: Tel Aviv for that demonstration.
0: Did you witness the assassination?
1: No, I mean, the assassination was, the concert ended, Well, I mean, the demonstration ended, there was lots of singing, and then we got on the buses to go home. And Rabin went behind, towards his car, and that's where it happened. We didn't hear about it until, you know, on the bus on the way back, they had it on the radio, on the news.
0: What were people, like, how were people processing that on on that bus?
1: You know, there were just so many tears, it was hard to believe that such a thing could happen.
0: Um, so it ha- was, yeah.
1: No, it was just beyond belief because all the hope, I mean, for, for such a movement to really get towards two states, it required leadership and Rabin was the person. He was a general, somebody who people regarded as tough. You could see when he shook hands with Arafat how much it pained him to do so to make that peace agreement with Jordan. The hope was, you know, however difficult...
0: Oh, hello. Sorry. Sorry, I think you maybe put me on hold by accident.
1: I think I did. Um, sorry, where did we cut off? So uh,
0: the, the, the personality of Rabin is what you're discussing and and him shaking hands um, with Arafat and how it pained him was where he left off. Um, but we could, we could so, so I can uh, skip ahead a, a little bit. So how long did you uh, stay in, in Israel and in, for, for that part of your career?
1: I was there for 10 years. I thought I'd stay there until there was peace and I thought that would take five years. So what, after,
0: what year did you leave?
1: I left when the second Intifada broke out. Oh, see.
0: In what, 2002, is that? 2001. 2001,
1: 2001.
0: Um, it, and I, I guess, did, how did you experience the, the second Intifada? I mean, it, I know it was sparked by the incident at the, the Temple Mount, right?
1: Yes, but when you look back now, just so many things started to go wrong after Rabin's assassination. And, you know, extremists became more confident that they could torpedo peace by carrying out horrible attacks. And so these were Palestinian attacks on Israeli buses, Israeli markets, and created a whole atmosphere of fear, which led in the end to the return of the Likud party to power. And the loss of belief that two states were possible. So all the projects that I had been working on in the West Bank and Gaza, it became too dangerous to work on them. And we had to suspend the projects and eventually close them down. So you can look at 10 years of everything started to be built up and then within months everything was closed down.
0: Um, I want to maybe run some t- run something by you. It, perhaps because I think I have like an American centric view of the world, um, and and perhaps an overinflated sense of American power, um, which you know I'll, I'll, I'll readily concede. Um, it, I guess it seems to me that you know, absent a domestic shift here in the United States in politics towards the Middle East and politics on Israel, it doesn't seem to me that there's going to be that kind of external pressure. To compel the sides to peace, present, you know, principally uh, Netanyahu. Um, I, I guess. Do you see that connection as 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 apparent, or are there other forces that might, you know, absent any you know marvelous change in the domestic politics here in the U.S., compel a Netanyahu and the Likud party to a more meaningful peace process?
1: It's it's hard to see it at the moment. I think the politics here are so contested, and the politics over there are so contested, it's hard to see ships aligning, but you just have to hope that new leaders come along with a strategic vision for the future. Because I think when you look at someone like Prime Minister Netanyahu at the moment, everything is tactics. It's tactics. It's not long-term strategy. It's not about long-term peace. And at the end of the day, how long is this sustainable for? The Jews are always going to be a very small minority in the Middle East. And the long-term interests, you would think, come from peace with neighbors. And peace with neighbors requires justice for Palestinians, which requires a Palestinian state. And the longer, and the you know, the longer the occupation of the West Bank goes on and the more settlements are built, the harder it is to get to that vision.
0: Um, So where did you end up after you left Israel?
1: So after I left Israel, I moved back to live in England. I moved to the north of England to a town called Manchester. And I was working for an organization called the British Council, which is kind of the cultural wing of the British government. I joined them when I was out in Jerusalem I went back to work for them in the UK. So I was based there, but I had a global remit on promoting justice and good governance around the world. So I traveled to a dozen or so countries.
0: Just like ma- managing uh, kind of good governance programs?
1: Yes, I mean, sometimes it would be on prison reform, sometimes violence against women, sometimes promoting access to justice for poor people. So doing lots of those sorts of initiatives.
0: Um, so. Uh, When, uh, you know, in, in say, 2002, when momentum was really building for uh, the invasion of Iraq here in the United States and also in, in, you know, among Tony Blair's government, uh, how were you experiencing the news? How, How did you, you know, there was almost like a war fervor fever here in the United States at the time. Um, I take it there was a bit less of so. I mean, I was actually at uh, I was I was studying at the LSC in 2002, so I know there was not actually a war fervor there. <laughs> there was uh, an anti-war. There course. was an anti-war for, for uh, there, and then I came back to finish my studies in the U.S. and I was like, oh my gosh, <laughs> I've come back to a totally different country. Um, so, how did you experience that lead up to the war?
1: Well, when I was a student at Oxford, which was the first Gulf War. I had been so against the war, I'd signed up as a human shield, that was for the first Gulf War.
0: Wait, what does that even mean to sign up as a human shield?
1: Well, I volunteered to be sent out somewhere in Iraq to just serve as a Western human shield to stop Western powers bombing different parts of Iraq. But
0: wasn't that what Saddam was doing with Westerners who were like diplomats and caught up somehow in Iraq at the time? I remember that term, the human shield, but I've never known someone to want to volunteer to Yeah,
1: they weren't volunteer ones. I met one of those in later life and when I told him as a student I'd actually volunteered to be human shield, he thought I needed my head testing. But when you're a student, you know, you come up with these dramatic ideas. But fortunately I was never sent. So by the time we got to the second Gulf War, I was, you know, very much against that war as well. If I'd been you know, I was very much in the anti-war camp. And I flew out, in fact, at the beginning of 2003, I flew out to the US because I was trying to understand why Americans wanted to go to war with Iraq. For me, there was no connection between 9-11 and Iraq. And, you know, I traveled around America. I went to Ground Zero. I listened to people's fears and concerns and I was just trying, because I really hadn't spent any time in America, so I was just trying to get an understanding of what was driving Americans.
0: What did you conclude?
1: I concluded that, you know, there was very different opinions. It wasn't, even though you had politicians drumming for revenge and talking about Iraq, I met many people, particularly in New York, that weren't at all in support of, of the war. But then I met others who were just fearful and scared and wanted to prevent another attack. So many different opinions. It wasn't one opinion. But not as the same as in the UK, when the UK was 80-90% were against the war. So much stronger views against war in Britain.
0: Uh, so how did you then end up serving uh, the in in the the
1: coalition? Well, The British government, this was in 2003, after the decision was taken to go to war, the British government sent an email round asking people to volunteer, to go and administer the country for three months before we handed it back to the Iraqis. And I thought this is a great opportunity for me to go out, to apologize to all the Iraqis for the war, and to help them rebuild their country. So that was how I came to be part of it. But before I left Britain, I didn't know what my job was going to be. I didn't receive a briefing. I just had one phone call from somebody in London, British government official in London, who said, get down to RAF Bryce Norton, the Royal Air Force Base, jump on a military plane to Basra, and there you'll be met by somebody holding your sign with, with your name on it and taken to the nearest hotel. And so that was all I, all I heard. And I thought, you know, the war's supposed to be ended. British government must know what they're doing. They just hadn't told me, and it would become clear on arrival.
0: So I I suppose then you made like a moral decision that um, even though you were opposed to this war, you thought you had a certain set of expertise that could help the uh, Iraqis get on their feet. Um, Was the competing perhaps moral or ethical question one that you considered which i suppose is that by going to uh, iraq and serving the british government you're actually you know serving the cause of the occupation or you're serving the cause of the military or the cause of of colonialism or whatever you know the anti-war rhetoric was at the time
1: well before i left i thought you know this is three months i'm gonna have three months in country apologizing to everybody and then the occupation will be over that was what i was told But when I, you know, I got, I followed the instructions. I arrived, got on the military plane. I arrived in Basra and there was nobody there to meet me, nobody holding a sign with my name on it. And it was clear that there was nobody expecting me. So I flew the next day up to, I found another plane going to Baghdad. I got to Baghdad and then went to the Republican palace, which was the headquarters of the coalition provisional authority and found that my name was on the list. So I was, you know, I was like, hello, I'm Emma from England, come to volunteer. And they said, oh, you know, that's great. And I spent a week in Baghdad and they said, we've got enough people here, try, try the north. So I flew up to Mosul, but they had somebody there and I kept going till I got to Kirkuk. And when I arrived in Kirkuk, I was told that I was the senior civilian reporting to Ambassador Bremer and that I was basically in charge of the province.
0: Well, that's interesting. So they're having a a British uh, person being the senior citizen to serve Ambassador Bremer, an American.
1: Yes. Well, none of this was pre-planned. It was just kind of who was there, who was available. And, you know, I'd come to apologize for the war. Now I was being put in like a colonial administrator of a province. So I was like, oh, my God. But in my first week, um, I survived an assassination attempt. So
0: what happened? What happened there?
1: Well, you know, Iraqis, I think, took my job title or my role pretty seriously. And in the first week, insurgents came to the front door of the house where I was living downtown in Kirkuk, And they fired five rockets into the house, RPGs. Unfortunately, it was a well-built house. One of the rockets came up into the room where I was in bed, but it was, the explosion was taken out in the ceiling. It'd come through a wall and through the ceiling. But it did, you know, obviously huge damage to the house. But I was very fortunate to survive.
0: I mean, how do you process an experience like that, a near-death experience like that?
1: Well, you know, my first thought was I've got to find somewhere else to live. That was the thing. I needed accommodation. So I went and tracked down the, the colonel who was in charge of the province, who was an American colonel with the 173rd Airborne Brigade, and I, my first thing was about getting accommodation for me, and I had some Gurkhas who were my bodyguards, so I needed to get accommodation for people.
0: and, and But you decided that you're going to stay, right? You, 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 did you ever cross your mind that you wanted to, to leave at this point?
1: No, it never it never crossed my mind at all. I mean, even when I arrived and there was nobody waiting for me, it didn't cross my mind to go back. I said I was going for three months, and that's what I planned to do. I had no idea what I was getting into, because you just assume that governments kind of got some organization and know what they're doing. So everything was a bit unexpected, but I thought I can't... <laughs> you know, I've got a job to do. I've got to get this province up and running. I've got to get Iraqis running their own affairs. So the, the military, the US military can withdraw and the occupation can end.
0: And, and so what were you think you were able to uh, accomplish? I mean, you know, Kirkuk is, is a highly contested, right? It's it's There are minorities of, of Sunni Kurds and Shia there, right?
1: And Tarkman, and Kakai, and Yazidi, okay. and, yeah. and Shabak, and lots of groups you've probably never heard of. I mean, it's a very diverse, multi-ethnic, multicultural province. And
0: sits on a lot of oil.
1: And sits on a lot of oil.
0: So what do you think you're... Could you point to you know specific lasting accomplishments uh, that that you, know, you helped um, engineer from your time there?
1: Well, probably not, but I can talk about what i did when i was there which was to try and mediate between all the different groups
0: and and so i mean how did you how did you go about mediating between these groups like what what were those experiences like
1: well there was a massive struggle for power in the aftermath of the overthrow of saddam and in previous years the Baath party had expelled kurds from the province and brought in arabs from the south to try and arabize the province because it was as you mentioned it's got lots of oil And the Kurds wanted to annex it to Kurdistan. And so in the aftermath of the overthrow of the regime, the Kurds were returning to the province, expelling people who they didn't believe belonged to the province, and they were trying to annex the province to Kurdistan again. So there were all these different power struggles going on, which I wasn't aware of before I arrived. I didn't know the history of this place. Lots of the other communities didn't want to become part of Kurdistan. They wanted to stay with Iraq. And so all these different demonstrations or all these different power struggles going on. And every day I would spend my time meeting all the different groups, listening to their concerns, listening to their grievances, and trying to mediate between them.
0: I guess, can you point to um, a specific mediation or a specific meeting that perhaps... um maybe crystallize the difficulties that you were facing uh, as a, you know, uh, a, a, a um, you know, foreign occupying force, occupying power?
1: Well, you know, I can give you one example, but it was, it's a positive example. Because I was really struck in Ku Cook by how everybody spoke each other's languages, loved each other's cultures and had intermarried. And you know they'd lived together for centuries upon centuries. So in an attempt to diffuse the political tensions, I organized the cultural event of the Kukuk Museum. And so for one evening, many of the artifacts which had been looted from the museum and been kept in people's homes were put back on display. And groups put on their different traditional performances. And it was a lovely evening, and the evening culminated with everybody getting up and spontaneously dancing the dabka hand in hand in, in a long line. And you could see all these different peoples all dancing together. And one of the politicians grabbed the microphone and said, you know, this is Cook, this is who we are. And so we to remember that evening because when things are stable, when you have a stable situation, people are able to get on very well together. But it's when government when the state collapses, when there's total chaos, that people are afraid and they go back into their sub-identities and back into their tribes, push back there out of fear. And so the sense is if you've got stability, if you've got a state as such, people can live together peacefully.
0: And so how long did you spend in Kirkuk uh, in in all, in that that role?
1: Um, I was in Kirkuk for, it was under a year but it was seven, eight months, something like that.
0: And then at what point did you get the call from, from Ray Ordierno to, uh, to, to service his advisor?
1: So when I was in Kirkuk, I started to work very closely with this American colonel and his boss was general Odierno. So whenever Odierno visited the province to meet his brigade, he also met me. So that's how I got to know him. And I left Iraq in 2004 I served back in Jerusalem for a year, then I went to Afghanistan for a year, and I just got out of Afghanistan in 2006, end of 2006, when I got an email out of the blue from General Odierno asking me, would I come back to Iraq? He was being sent back as the commander of the corps that was going to be responsible for the surge, and he asked me to be his political advisor.
0: Uh, And uh, did you uh, hesitate?
1: Oh, I did hesitate. I pretended the email had gone to spam.
0: (laughs) 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 You write it back saying, oh, sorry, this went to spam. Sorry, apologies for the delay or something like that.
1: Yeah, or no, I didn't. I just didn't respond. And then a few hours later, you know, generals have minions, millions of minions. So a few hours later, I was sent a photo of my house on Google Earth, my house in London on Google Earth with rockets pointing down at it. So I thought, oh God, not again. And I was persuaded, I suppose.
0: Yeah. <laughs> that, that's that's that I one <laughs> way to persuade, have the US military <laughs> ranking officer <laughs> threaten to bomb your house. Uh,
1: so I was persuaded that I should go back. I mean, I'd met him, I knew him from before. He was a guy who I had huge respect for and liked.
0: And well, the fact that he mm-hmm.
1: asked me, the fact that he felt I could be useful to him made me think I should try. Well, that's
0: interesting because you know his uh, reputation early on, I mean, I, I, I gleaned from reading that Tom Bricks book like 10 years ago, um, which sort of painted Ordierno and sort of the the sort of you know, kick butt and take names kind of uh, <laughs> fighter as opposed to like the wise and all knowing Petraeus who you know waged a delicate counterinsurgency. Um, was that actually his reputation at the time as, as being sort of a tough, just blow down their, you know, just, just, just you know, just knock down their houses and, and arrest all the bad guys and then we'll be done?
1: <laughs> well, I think the Ricks book created that sort of reputation, but that's a very exaggerated portrayal.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay. So, so it, that was not, I mean, uh, to be honest, I mean, my understanding of Odin Odierno is probably through that Ricks book
1: yeah, but he suffers from I don't know if you can picture him, but he, you know, he is six foot five. He is Bald, massive. He's got yeah. a shaved head. So you know, it's kind of like the dumb blonde syndrome. You look at a guy like oh, that, yeah. and that's what you assume he would be like.
0: Oh, that's fascinating. I had not I had not thought <laughs> of that, but that that's that's really interesting. no, I, I, I like that. And I know that there have been a lot of criticisms leveled at that Rick's book in particular. so, um, I know I, I I do take your, your, your point. Um, so I'm sorry. So, so we are um, a f- couple minutes over time. I, d- do you have a few more minutes? I mean, I, I don't want to keep you longer. Uh, sure. I've to. got
1: a few minutes if you want to let like, them cut it down afterwards.
0: Yeah. D- yeah. I I just cut it down and we could just talk a, a little bit about your time working with Odierno. Arno. Um, if that's, if that's okay. Maybe just like sure. another three more minutes or so. Sure, sure, sure. And I also want to let you plug whatever you're working on uh, as well currently. Um, okay, so so what was your, your your first experience then? You know, landing in, in Baghdad, I suppose, and working with with the, the top U.S. general.
1: So, you know, I said to him, "What do you want me to do? What, what do you want my role to be?" And you know, we had really good conversations late into the night after work each day, and it was, you know, he spoke to me about how he'd learnt the limitations of force during his first tour in Iraq and he'd seen the way in which I'd interacted with the brigade and he just said, you've got really different skill sets to us. You see things in a different way, you've got a different perspective. And he said he wanted me to go with him wherever he went. We would talk about where we were going beforehand and we would debrief afterwards. And he said, I just want to understand more how you see the world, I want to learn from that." And he said, you have to tell me if I'm screwing up, which I thought, like, wow, that's really, that takes a lot of self-awareness to give somebody those instructions. Because at the end of the day, they always tell you to hire people who are different from you, but people usually hire people who are like them. And you don't get two people who are more different than me and General Odiena We're very, very different people. We haven't got anything in common, and our lives would never have intersected if it hadn't been for the Iraq war.
0: And so... Did you have that moment where you, you, know, you told him, you know, you're flat out wrong, you need to change?
1: Well, in private, but not in public. <laughs> no, we had really good discussions, really, really good discussions. And I learned massively from him.
0: What perspective do you think he was referring to when he said that you have this different perspective? I mean, what, what was your perspective at the time? Uh, and how did you, I guess, just go about your your day to day business at, at at that time? I guess, which was uh, Iraq at, at that point was probably in the midst of of its civil war.
1: Yeah, Iraq was in the depths of. I mean, it really was on the abyss. And I mean, the way General Odierno describes it is, you know, he said I helped him with the why. The army always looks at the what. You know, things are blowing up. That's what's happening. Well, I would always want to know why. What are the drivers of instability? Why are people doing these things? Why do people use violence? You know, it's, it's those questions. Because there's always trying to, if you're trying to, if you can find out why people are using violence, you might be able to, you know, reach a solution or persuade them not to use violence. And this led to that whole process where we had outreach to insurgent groups. We started separating those who were reconcilable from those who were irreconcilable. So it was all part of that process of changing the mindset of the military Mm. and doing deals with people who had previously been fighting us.
0: Yeah, what we refer to now as the Sunni awakening, right? Yeah. Um, So maybe my my, my last question about this episode... um, Maybe it's 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 a bit personal so you know feel free not to answer it if you don't, if you don't like but you know you're you're a woman operating in what has to be in a not just a male environment but like a masculine environment um you know army everywhere and and you know Iraqi culture um, such as it is is probably a little more male dominated than female dominated like how did you navigate um your your position as a woman and and get yourself in the meetings get yourself heard were there any troubling or, or difficult moments that you faced?
1: Well, you know, having grown up in an all boys environment, the military in a way was quite familiar to me. So I don't, you know, didn't think, gosh, I'm the only woman in the room because I was so used to being the only woman in the room. I found there were one or two females in the military who I came across who were fantastic and we always looked out for each other. There were particularly strong women working in military intelligence. I think some of the smartest women in the army go into military intelligence. But I also had an unexpected ally on the Iraqi side, who was the military advisor to the prime minister. And her name was Dr. Basima, and she wore hijab and heels. She was a rocket scientist, and she was his military advisor. And we recognised in each other kindred spirits, we both understood that the different groups in Iraq were competing for power and resources. And we thought the only way to end the violence is really through reconciliation and that most groups could be brought into the process. It's only the really ext- like the very, very extreme, the ones who want to collapse the state and bring about the caliphate, they're the only ones who can't. And so we helped bring our bosses, you know, the prime minister and the general closer together and to agree on the way ahead so
0: do you still keep in touch with her yes i do what's she up to now
1: she is teaching at university in baghdad
0: um so i I wanted to give you one last moment so now you're at yale uh what are you doing at yale and and are there any projects that we can look forward to coming from from you in,
1: in the near future so i have been teaching middle east politics and the new iraq at yale I'm also the new director of the Yale World Fellows Programme, which brings 16 extraordinary mid-career people from around the world to Yale for four months. And I'm working you know, with some students on projects to help Syrian refugees, so that's my life at the moment. I'm on book tour as well, so giving lots and lots of talks about my book, and staying pretty busy.
0: Um, Excellent. Well, again, thank you so much for for your time, for sharing your experience with me, for being so open with, with everyone. And I, again, recommend that everyone check out your book where they could read many of these stories.
1: Oh, thank you very much.
0: All right. Thank you all for listening. I have some great episodes coming up this month. So stay tuned. Subscribe on iTunes if you have not already. Also, we have a free mobile app for those of you who want direct access to Global Dispatches Podcast without having to go through any Apple products. As always, feel free to hit me up on Twitter at Mark L. Goldberg or send me an email via GlobalDispatchesPodcast.com if you have any suggestions or comments or just want to let me know what's going on in your life. I will see you later. Bye.